Amen. Well, I invite you today to turn with me to the prophet Ezekiel, asking yourself, when was the last time you turned to the weirdest of all prophets? Because Ezekiel is kind of weird. When you read the book of Ezekiel, you read some pretty weird stuff. But as we're turning there, it was early today during my retreat time with God that the scripture of the day led me to, in my mind, some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. And there I read the first two verses of the entire Bible in the book of Genesis. The world was formless. It actually means waste. And the world was dark. It suggests, as Eugene Peterson interprets it, like a, a dark, like ink. It suggests chaos. And then we read this. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then what happens? Light. Form. Order. Fullness. And the Spirit of God hovers poised to create. And then it goes on and it says that animals came, water, fish, birds. And we watch as creation ignites with flourishing. The same Spirit of God that was hovering over the waters that we see accounted for in the book of Genesis is the same Spirit of God that's hovering over your heart and my heart this moment. Here's the question for me today. Am I willing? Am I prepared? Am I wanting Him to create His flourishing in me? Because you see, last week we got a vision from Isaiah 65 that was all about flourishing. This breathtaking vision that we find in Isaiah 65. As we're finding our way through this series on promises and prophets, last week was such a promising vision of hope for our world, for our lives. And we find ourselves now to a, another part of that promise. But first, let me, let me say this. I, I said this last week about that vision from God. I said the pathway out of hopelessness, because we talked about it being this orientation toward hope, the pathway out of hopelessness and the evidence that we are actually waiting for the day when God makes everything right is that we seek to make this a reality today. And then I said this, because this is what's already inside of those who follow Jesus. If you catch nothing today, or even from last week, catch that. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in me is the hope of glory. So whatever the vision God has for the world is already planted in me through Christ. 
Well, someone texted me and asked me a question. And he said, what, what do you mean by that statement? It's a very fair question because most of the time, much of the time, preachers preach sermons and people go, what did you mean? <laughs> and I responded with these words, the vision of Isaiah 65 is God's vision. And through Christ, this God, this God of hope, and his hopeful vision is within us as we live in the power of the Spirit. And what happens in the power of the Spirit is our lives align, they begin to align with his vision both, both personally and corporately, both individually and together. But this is what I think is the most critical piece of that entire statement. In the power of the Spirit within. Where God wants to create in us a heart that can hold that vision and live that vision of hope. Where the Spirit of God can create a new foundation in our lives for hope. And I pray that when you leave here today, you will not be content with anything less. That's my prayer today. When you leave here today, when I leave here today, may we not be content with anything less than for our hearts to hold and have the capacity to hold the vision of hope that God has for us. But it can only be born by the fullness of the Spirit. May God open our hearts today, I pray. Well, we have been walking in the ruins of Jerusalem and walking with this people of God that we see in the, in the 6th and the, and the 7th centuries B.C. that were captured by Babylon, who lost everything. We started with Micah, and we made our way through Habakkuk and, and Haggai, and we heard the, the hard questions, and we wondered, what does it mean to really be a person of God? Pastor Mary took us to the walls of, of a broken down um, a wall around Jerusalem and the broken down temple and we watched as Nehemiah and Ezra wrestled with what it meant to get hold of a new vision from God and then we looked last week at this vision from God that says look what I want to do this is what I want and remember we said uh, when, when we see those words in Isaiah 65 and, and it says see he's doing a new thing it literally means God's going look 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 it's me it's about me so we've been walking this ground, this same ground. Because you see, it finally happened. For decades they were warned it would, the people of God. The likes of Jeremiah and Habakkuk and others, as I mentioned, tried to steer the people away from disaster. But in 586 B.C., everything came crashing down. And Jerusalem was sacked. And the Babylonians completed the captivity. Now it's on that hopeless side of history. And some would say that we are living in a hopeless side of history. On that hopeless side of history, some of the most hopeful words we could ever imagine, individually and corporately, are given to us from the weird prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning with verse 25. This is the word of the Lord for us today. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Thanks be to God. The imagery of this passage is hopeful and helpful for me because wanting to live out this vision of hope that God has is a noble desire. It's a noble desire. We should want that. Whether we declare any kind of faith in God or not, within everyone is a desire for the world to be better than what it is. But here's the, here's the hard fact. Wanting to live out that vision is a hopeful desire, but the truth is, we can't. It's not just a matter of doing good things, even doing good Christian things. It's deeper than that. Ezekiel reminds these ancient exiles and us that the starting place, the starting place is the heart. The, the operation system of the life. It's the heart. And anything that hinders us from living out the hopeful vision we imagined last week must be addressed in the heart. Ezekiel has a word for this. And this is the first of three. It's the word stones. For Ezekiel, stones is another word for idols. And so the people of this period chose to participate in the idolatry of the cultures around them. When we think of idols, what do we think of? We think of things like Easter Island and the 900 big, tall, human, weird-looking stones that are all over that island where tourists flock to stand alongside them. We think of stones like that. Products of what some say is ancient worship. We have no problem labeling those kind of things, idols. But Ezekiel points to something that's not earth and stone, really. That's what he's pointing to. Not pointing to that. Not pointing to even religion or ritual. He says this, I will remove from you your heart of stone. I want you just to let that settle on you, that idea of a heart of of stone. And now's the time when each of us have to ask ourselves, do I have a heart of stone? Here's a problem with idols. They seem simply external. Just something out there. Whether it's a stone head on Easter Island or a balance in our checking account. They're out there. And they seem so benign. Idols have always seemed benign. But the problem with idols is this. They possess the heart. 
Not only do stones begin to possess the heart, but here's what's happened. They change the heart. And they make us less open to God and others. Here's always been the problem of idolatry. Always. Idolatry changes the heart, which changes how we're open to God, which changes whether or not we're fully human. Because when we're fully human, we have hearts that are open to God. That's the fully human experience. So that's the problem of these idols. Not only do they possess the heart, they change the heart, and they make the heart less open to God, less open to others. He called it a heart of stone. Hard. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The proverb writer said, guard your heart, for out of it flows the wellspring of life. So where do we see this heart of stone today? Well, I think we see it in a couple of places. I think we list a number of places. I think we see this today with the depth of political entrenchment. A fierce disregard for others, an unwillingness to break out of our echo chambers. I think it shows up in the ways we worship and we choose the priority of personal preference and rights over sacrificial love. That's hardness. The heart of stone. Quite honestly, the, the prophet is saying this about the heart. This heart becomes intractably set on its own way. It becomes continuously set on always having to be right. It becomes resolutely set on what I want. Ooh. Lighten up, Ezekiel. But this isn't just an Old Testament prophet's concern. The New Testament speaks to this. Powerfully. In the book of Hebrews, we read these words as the Hebrew writers reflecting back on the ancient people of Israel who wandered in the desert. He says this See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, listen closely to this next line. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Here's one reason why we need to be gathered physically together encouraging one another today. He says the same thing in Hebrews 10. Encourage one another today. Something happens. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness is really a great description of idol worship. It's deceiving to us. And what does it do? It hardens our hearts. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What does that seem like? Well, Scotty Smith is a pastor in Tennessee, and he has a great little devotional prayer book that I've used in the past. And he prays this prayer, which is a prayer for all of us to pray. But he says, Lord, sometimes the approval or rejection of people has more sway over my heart than what you think about me. Sometimes my need to be right is more compelling to me than being righteous in Christ. 
Sometimes my desire to be in control of people and circumstances claims much more of my time and energy than seeking your face and saving your grace and serving your son, the true king. These are just a few of the things that bear the marks of idolatry in my heart. So can I ask you today, what are some of the stones that may be in your heart? Are there stones in your heart, in my heart? What are some of those stones? Discontent? By the way, discontent is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. We are fed discontent with every commercial we watch about a new car. Or fill in the blank. Discontent, pride, fear. Like I said earlier, the need to be right. Our view of the church, a political platform. Disordered affections and desires and passions. See, all, all of that creates this hardness because it first begins to create this, this hardness between us and God, which then bleeds its way over into hardness with others. And, and most often the result of this is that absence of passion for God and a compassion toward others. This is how another prophet put it. In Zechariah 7 we read, they made their hearts as hard as flint. Do we have that one? Yeah. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. But he made their hearts as hard as flint. What a picture that is. Stones. Every one of us needs to ask this question. Is my heart hard? That's what the prophet is raising. You want to live out this vision, this hopeful vision of God, but, but stones. But then there's that word we've been throwing around a lot this morning. It's the word heart. Heart. Heart surgery, for those of you who've had heart surgery know this, heart surgery is a last-ditch effort, typically. Typically, when someone has heart surgery, the doctor doesn't say, you know, I just think maybe, maybe we'll try heart surgery and see what happens. No, not, it's usually not the case. It means that no exercise is going to make it better. Exercise all you want, still not going to get better. No pill will make things right. No exercise or no diet that you have suddenly is going to make you no longer have the heart disease that requires the surgery. Something radical is required. When someone says, you need to have major heart surgery, that's a radical thing. But when doctors suggest that, they're not suggesting that because it's a word of fear. They're not suggesting that to scare us. They're not suggesting that to hurt us. In fact, what they're giving to us when they suggest that is actually good news. They're giving us a word of hope. 
We say, really? Yes, really. How many countless people do I know who have had open heart surgery who said, I can't believe the difference in my life following surgery? So when a doctor says, you need heart surgery, they're saying, we have an answer and I'm gonna, I have hope. This very image-rich passage is actually not about the stones. You say, wait a minute, you talked all about those stones and tell us it's not about the stones? It's not. It's actually good news because it's about God's desire to give us a new heart. About God's desire to give us a softened heart. Unfortunately, in our, our culture, we have, we've come to believe that having a soft heart is a sign of weakness. But bear with me here. This is a word of hope from the God of hope. The New Living Translation gives us verse 26 this way. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart. Boy, is that descriptive. <laughs> no one here I know has ever had a stony, stubborn heart. I know that. But for those of us who have, I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. What's the opposite of a stone-like heart? A tender, responsive heart. Now, obviously, he's not talking about the 10 to 12-ounce wonder, and technically, it's actually like 8 to 15-ounce wonder, Obviously, this is not about that wonder that keeps the blood circulating in your body. But it's about the stubbornness of the will, that resistance to surrender, that refusal to give up control, that insistence that you must be right, that adherence to your way, that turning inward. But here's the good news. We don't have to be that way. And the person who says, well, this is one of the worst things I've ever heard anyone say, sometimes even out of my own mouth, well, that's just the way I am. Talk about dodging it, right? Well, that's just the way I am. It's just my personality. You know, well, you know, I hurt you badly, but that's um, just how I am. We don't have to be that way. Listen to what the text says. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. <laughs> this past week, our granddaughter Olivia was at our house and we set up this little plastic pool in the backyard. I'm not sure if Kathleen and I enjoyed going in the pool more or she did, because it's so hot, we put our feet in it, but when we get her in the water and I just start splashing, shh, this is what happens. This big smile gets on her face, water's flying everywhere, it's just splashing all over her, and she has this big smile on her face and she just lets out the greatest laugh that makes any grandparent go, this is the greatest thing in the universe, right? And she's just splashing away, splashing away. And that's the image here. This image of our God just splashing water on us. This is what God wants to do. He wants to, 
He wants to cleanse us. He wants to make us to make room. He wants to take our hearts and make room in our hearts for the vision of hope that he has, for the flourishing he has. He wants to clean our hearts so that we can hold this flourishing that God has for us. And here's what the really good news is. He wants to do that in a moment, but he also just wants to keep doing it. As things come up, as we walk through life, as we face our struggles, he wants us, he's going, come on, get in the pool. Come on, get in the pool, right? And he just wants to start splashing us with water. I know that doesn't sound like the ceremonial washing of the Jewish temple that he's probably thinking of, but that's how I imagine God in this. Because God, the God of hope, wants this so desperately for us. And he wants to be like our granddaughter with a smile on our face saying, oh, thank you for that water. Uh, This is so good to just be in the pool with you. As he splashes us with the power of his spirit to cleanse us. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Wow. We need to remember that truth. He wants to make room for his vision in our life by cleaning us of those attitudes and those desires and those affections that pull us away from God. In Hebrews 10, it says this, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There it is again. New Testament, same thing. God wants us to get in the pool of his love with him and he wants us to just splash us with cleansing. God wants to cleanse us of self-absorption that dominates our thinking God wants, in Hebrews chapter 9, God wants to cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He wants to cleanse our minds and our hearts so that we may serve and live out the vision of God for our life and for the world. It's there over and over and over. It's an alignment. It's a realignment, if you will, of the self. John Wesley called it the frame of the soul. He wants to give us a tender heart and a responsive heart, and as Wesley said, a new holy frame given to us, not wrought by our own power, and that's the key. Listen to God's heart on this. Listen to God's desire in Jeremiah 24. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. As we return to him with all our hearts, we get to know him. This isn't just religion. This is knowing. That's God's promise. Come here. Let me splash you with my cleansing. Let me give you of my flourishing. Come on. That's God's promise. That's his invitation. But we need spirit. We need spirit. 
It's very easy to think that we can accomplish this ourselves. We can just create the circumstances that will be just right so that we can be happy. And we too often um, confuse happiness with flourishing. Happiness and flourishing are not necessarily the same thing. I think God wants us to be happy. I'm not a, like, I like being happy. I don't want to go through life not being happy. But flourishing and happiness are not the same thing because I know some people who are the most flourishing people I know, yet their life circumstances are sad and painful and hurtful. So we need to stop equating the fullness of the Spirit, the flourishing life, with our circumstances. They inform our circumstances. They empower us in the midst of our circumstances. But it's easy to think that we can just accomplish this ourselves, if we can just figure it out. But to think that way is equivalent to thinking that if the doctor says to me, okay, Jeff, yeah, you've had one too many chocolate chip cookies, and now you need heart surgery. Right? That's a lot of chocolate chip cookies. And I say, okay, that's good. And I lay myself on the table, on the gurney, and then I figure out a way to wheel myself into the operating room, and then I figure out how to perform heart surgery on myself. couple problems with that. One, I'm afraid of needles. And secondly, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of sharp objects, so I don't know that I'd be able to do that very well. But that's the same thing to assume that we can accomplish this ourselves. And that's what Ezekiel knew, the prophet. He knew God's people were incapable of living out the vision on their own. And this is what you and I must know. We are incapable of living out this vision on our own. The Spirit of God, the very presence of God, can give us a new heart. More importantly, he wants to give us a new heart. Amen. He not only can, but he wants to. Hear that. God not only can, cleanse us of a stony heart. But he wants to. He wants to. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, we want to move, as I read this week, we want to move from inspiration to activity. We want to be inspired about something great. Now let's go figure out what we need to do about it. Right? Right? We want to go from aspiration to application. We are so pragmatic. We want to figure it out. Right? Oh, this is a great idea. Let's figure it out. But it's the Holy Spirit who must do in our hearts what only he can do. This is how J.D. Walt put it just at the beginning of this week in a blog post. He said, inspiration and aspiration are wonderful. They are the work of the Holy Spirit. Application and activation are vital. They too are the work of the Holy Spirit. But there is a missing middle movement here. It is the Holy Spirit's work of actuation. Now hear this text again. I will put my spirit in you and move you. I will put my spirit in you and move you. Now the word spirit here is this beautiful word, ruach. And it suggests wind in motion. 
And as I was studying that this week, I began to think about those great big turbines that catch the wind, that create the electricity. Will our lives become like a wind turbine that is actuated when the wind blows across it and thus is able to produce electricity? But without the wind, without the wind, no power. Which means that no amount of religious activity, no amount of efforts in our own strength, no amount of attempts on our part to try to be good, look good, or do good will make our heart good. We must allow the Holy Spirit to do the deep work at the point of our passions and our desires, our wants, and our ways of our lives. So is my heart pliable? Is my heart teachable? Is my heart open to what the Spirit wants to do? Is it sensitive to people I encounter? Is my heart willing to decentralize my preferences, my wants, my stuff? That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. You want to talk about what real freedom is? That's what real freedom is. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit transforms us into the people of the flourishing story of God. When God is allowed to do the needed heart surgery, we then are free to fulfill the purpose of bringing pleasure to God's heart. The final words of our text seem benign. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. But you see, the dream of God, the dream of the God of hope, is expressed in those words. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. The allusion to the living in the land is about actually realizing the desire of God's heart. What a beautiful thing to realize that I can live with God. What a beautiful thing to realize I can live as God's person. What a beautiful thing to know that I can, I can live a life of flourishing. What a beautiful thing to know I can have a heart that holds the hope he has for the world. Hear that. Don't hear from me that this is like a one and done deal. And don't hear from me that holding hope, the hope of God in my heart, means that life is easy. Let's go back to last week, how we closed the service. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. That's the vision God has for our lives. And as it says in the New Living Translation from 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more like him.
I'm going to ask our worship team if they would just come as we close our service out together today. Remember what I said at the start of this service that at creation, the Spirit was hovering over emptiness and formlessness and chaos and darkness with one goal in mind, creating flourishing. The heart of the God of creation by the Spirit of God hovering over creation has not changed. He hovers over you today. He hovers over me today with one thing in mind. To create his flourishing, his hopeful vision in our lives. Stones. Be honest about them. Heart. Surrender the deepest part of who you are to God. Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to do the deep work within you that you are incapable of doing yourself. As the worship team begins to play, I invite you to stand. And in a moment, we're going to sing the song, Breathe on Us. Is there a place where you need the Holy Spirit just to fill you fresh and anew? Is there a place where you just need God to touch you, to cleanse you, to meet you, to encourage you, where you need the Holy Spirit to just breathe on you? Where you need the wind in motion, God's cleansing presence. And you want to just come and pray before you leave. You just want to come and kneel and just say, God, here it is. Here's my heart. I just want to come. I invite you to come. Before we start singing, just come. We're just going to pray together. If you just want to come and say, I just want to be open. I just want to kneel and just come to you, God, and say, I'm open. Anyone else want to come? A couple folks have come. Just say, here I am, God. Fill me with your spirit. Cleanse my heart of anything that hinders me from living out the flourishing vision you have for my life. Come, God. I know I can't do it without you. Just come. Fill me, God. As we sing, if you'd like to come and pray, I invite you to come. Lord, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would breathe on us fresh. We pray, Lord God, for these who have come, that you just meet them at the point of the depth of their hearts and do the work that only you can do. We pray for each of us, Lord, that we would walk from this place not satisfied with living anything other than the life of your flourishing vision for us, a life of goodness, 
life of holiness, a life of grace, a life of love, a life of hope. God, we can only do that in the empowerment of your spirit. So come Holy Spirit. May we pull back the layers we've built up. May we pull back the stones that we've put in place. Fill us. May your wind in motion, O oh God, fill us, we pray. For the glory of your name. All God's people said, Amen. Make sure you greet one another in Jesus' name.